DEI, ESG, CRT, sounds like alphabet soup, but it only spells one thing. I'm Monica Perez, and this is today's Deep Dive. Today's diving platform provided by Fox News, parents push back on American colleges promoting DEI initiatives. Quote, DEI is dangerous. So DEI stands for diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I'm familiar with it now because both of my kids' high school over the past schools over the past year have announced diversity officers or chief diversity academics. I don't know, but like a position there called diversity thing. And I, and when I heard them say like a diversity officer. I wondered if they were armed, you know, like the resource officers are armed. The diversity, hey, you kids go play with that kid. You need to play with that kid. You haven't spent enough time playing with that kid. So I wanted to see, I like sometimes to read the wiki entry for stuff. I just, in the first paragraph, they usually tell you exactly what it means in its entirety. All you need to know. So let me read that to you. Diversity, equity, and inclusion is a term most often used to describe a training format in the workplace. DEI training, which funny enough, DEI means like day. Doesn't that mean God? (laughs) They want you to think this is like a new God. DEI training is utilized to encourage functional knowledge of fellow employees' identities and how to navigate diversity in an organization. So they want you, they want functional knowledge of fellow employees. So you probably know people, like any, you know, anybody who works in a big company or a big tech company or whatever. They have like diversity training and you have to sit there and basically they, you have to say, I, I've heard this from people, like why you suck because you're white or why you're a racist, even if you, have a hard time understanding that. And I don't think it makes anybody feel more comfortable. I really do not think that is serving the communities of color. I think it's meant to undermine actually them in a variety of ways. So that's what it says to do. Diversity, this goes on to say, describes a wide variety of differences that may exist among people in any setting, including race, ethnicity, nationality, gender, and sexual identity, disability, neurodiversity, and others. So are they (laughs) no longer discriminating against kids like my son who has Down syndrome? They're going to start letting them into the school of his choice. Equity, quote, is the concept of providing equal opportunities through a personalized approach, utilizing unequal distribution of resources to, quote, level the playing field. Now, that's really important. Utilizing unequal distribution of resources to level the playing field. So let's think about that for a second. So you work in a company. This is for academics, like this article was about academics, but DEI is from is like the corporate world. It's really corporate training. So you utilize unequal resources. So you're in a company that is funded by shareholders. Who are the shareholders? Well, I'm a shareholder because I have a 401k. I have retirement savings. Thank God for the first time ever. And it's just hard earned money, hard won money that I put in there so that I don't have to just be a laborer. I can also be capital. And that's what is so great about the system. They act like there's this Marxist tension between labor and capital, but not in a shareholding situation where there was one at one point, 40, 50% of the market was run, was owned by pension funds. Now it's BlackRock. And I don't know how that shakes out, but at the time your interests were aligned with the smart money. That was a good thing. Anyway, so you put that in there or you're the guy who works in the place or both. You're a shareholder and you're a guy who works in the place. So you're there and 
some of the profits of that company is going towards supporting someone who cannot produce as much as you in order to make amends for social ills that you did not contribute to, because this is all about historical, because it does fold into CRT, critical race theory, which is a historical perspective. And the schmuck working in the corporation isn't some idle rich who has benefited over the years from this. Now, they're saying that you benefit because your position there, your ability to be better at that job, say, or fit in better, is a result of historical racial profiling. But I, or whatever. But for me, in my experience, my every single one of my ancestors, I can actually tell you from like my grandparents and above, dirt, poor, peasants, farmers, all of them. They were all farmers. Every one of them. I mean, I don't really know about the Syrian great-grandfather because he left my grandmother in an orphanage and went back to Syria, but I don't imagine he was riding high if he emigrated to America back then. So even if you are responsible for it somehow, there is absolutely no way to identify the extent of your responsibility in that setting. If you were responsible in that setting, that's an HR violation. If you harass people or discriminate against people, you are out. Any of the companies that are doing this, that is definitely bottom line. Even when I was uh, discriminated against for my gender back in the day, that was against company policy. Like I could say, hey, that guy leaves me out of meetings because he only likes men, <laughs> you know, and it's impairing my ability to work. That, and that was that guy's bad. And the company recognized that. That's a long story, but, uh, and believe me, I was not happy to have to come to terms with that. Someday I'll tell that story. See what you think about my position. And anyway, but so, so it's about things that they can't really pin on you and you have to pay for it with the sweat of your brow because you're going to make less money. There's less money to go around for this support. Now, would people voluntarily do that to support others of color and, um, or people of other kind of issues? Maybe, maybe, but why not have a fund, <laughs> you know, that says because, or maybe you voluntarily work at a company that has that profile and you're willing to take a little less or that company. Now, this is an angle that comes out of the ESG World Economic Forum stuff. That company is going to be so much more prosperous because those people actually enhance their ability to prosper. And in the world, there's so much more money for socially considerate companies and the consumer money, the shareholder money. That is possible. It is possible that all of that is true. So maybe that's why the academic world doesn't like it, because it, is, uh, it isn't something that can be measured in that way. And there's an argument about whether or not it has inherent value and achieves the goals that it says it sets out to, to achieve. So I want to get back to the academic thing. Let me just tell you the last issue, the last leg of the stool and the Wikipedia thing. Inclusion details the desired outcome, ensuring that those who fall under the title of diverse genuinely feel safe, welcome, and included. Inclusion is a step past integration where diverse individuals blend completely into the environment without a second thought. Now, how is that possible when the entire environment is structured around educating you, calling attention to those differences and requiring that you recognize those differences as being such a fundamental part of you that you can't even see it? 
I mean, I know that's kind of a lot. Maybe I have to also say that sociology is not my thing. Psychology is not my thing. Like, I actually think that sociology is there to try to convince you not to believe the evidence of your own eyes about people's motives and their interactions and the things that you literally see around you. And I feel like psychology, although I do have respect for a lot of it, it's politicized and weaponized so that you, I mean, I really feel like it's meant, it can be used to support people denying the motives of their own actions. And I think it's applied to like the welfare state to say, we, you can't say that this provides an incentive to people not to work because psychology would say that people will work whether they're getting paid to work or not, which is ridiculous. <laughs> but, you know, that's why I think sociology and psychology, so I've never really been interested in it. And, and this isn't exactly the type of thing that I can really just see right through, like I see through a lot of other stuff. But I think I, I've got some thoughts here that I can defend. So let's get back to how this applies to the academic and and the fact that does it really apply to the goals? Are those really their goals? What did they say the goal were that uh, those who fall under the title of diverse genuinely feel safe, welcome, and included? And I assume they mean everyone should feel safe, welcome, and included. People who feel diverse generally feel safe, welcome, and included. Now, is Diverse people feeling safe, welcome, and included. What does safe mean? Safe from harassment or safe from impoverishment? Because to me, when we're talking about real human suffering, to feel included, to feel part of a clique, maybe that causes suffering elsewhere. You know what I mean? Like um, to feel welcome, you know, it just, it smacks a little bit of in-group, out-group, of actually promoting in-group, out-group. And that's what this guy, Cliff Mass, who is a big opponent of this, or at least cited in that article, he's a meteorology professor at University of Washington. He says it actually stifles discourse and reduces diversity of ideas. And that's what they're there for. That I am just paraphrasing from memory, but that it's tantamount to compelled speech or is maybe like a slavery of the mind to have thoughts conform without actually developing them yourself. And, and I wonder then if, if that's so very effective, because if it's, if you're not developing your thoughts for yourself, then you're really admitting that the university system is there for indoctrination alone. And, Obviously, the whole DEI thing is supposed to fall under the umbrella of virtue. Obviously, that's what they're saying. Like, you're a good person, you're a bad person, depending on if you embrace this DEI thing. Apparently, there's a tremendous amount of turnover in the DEI, chief DEI officer role. I was, like, investigating a little bit what a statement of diversity is and all this kind of stuff. And how, what it would be to be the person in charge of that, if they're hiring people like that in academics, a lot of turnover, probably because they're, you're walking around telling half the workforce that they suck and pinning it on the other half of the workforce. <laughs> so nobody is going to be happy. If you want people to feel, what does it say in the, in the wiki definition, um, diverse individuals blend completely into the environment without a second thought, having a diversity cop around is probably not going to achieve that goal. It's probably not possible to achieve that goal. So, but what is it that the real social justice warriors, the true believers think they're accomplishing here? 
safety, inclusiveness. But why is that the most important thing? Really? Like why? For me, I feel like the the basic necessities, which we talked about yesterday, I did or last deep dive was about food security. And they talked, went into, I didn't bring the quote, there was just so much material on that. But it was about how the basic, the fundamental level of the hierarchy of needs is not being met, like food, water, shelter, clothing. And now, so I, I do actually think that that's that's the foundation. And beyond that, if you build community on that, you can probably get your psychology and your sociology squared away. We've got institutions for that that are millennia old, such as churches and communities, towns, So, and the absolute institution of family. So, But what do they think that they're accomplishing? Do they think they're alleviating human suffering? In like, do they think they're hum- alleviating human suffering in the long term? In the short term, do they think they're delivering some kind of true justice? And and if so, could so-called social justice, which they think is the true justice, they really don't like. And when I say they, I mean stuff I've read. I've read about this, and they don't. They it, you'll look up individual justice, and they'll say that's the problem. That's what you want people to stop thinking about. But individuals are the only ones who can experience suffering. So where is injustice cannot be this nebulous concept that applies to inanimate objects. It's about suffering, really. It implies that they're suffering. Or, you know, are they trying to promote desired behaviors and attitudes, obviously? But what are desired behaviors? Is it political loyalty or creating surplus and thereby alleviating suffering? What, what are they trying to promote? What do they think they're trying to promote? And when you think about the corporate environment, producing efficiently by allowing market forces to direct people to their best use and then rewarding them for applying themselves as well as they can, that, in, in my mind, alleviates the most suffering because it can provide the most of those basic necessities. And it can have people access them in their own way, to the best of their abilities, according to their abilities, uh, the, the abilities that are relevant to the task at hand. Identity and intersectionality can be relevant to many things, to the functioning of society. But if you're talking about a corporation whose place in society is to contribute goods and services, the more they can contribute with the less sweat of the brow, the better. And the better, and the more that they will be able to do that best by allowing the natural market forces to get people where they are best suited. It's the parable of the talents. God did not create everyone with the same talents. And you know what? Some talents are so valuable. The intellectual capacity coupled with the ability to apply that intellectual capacity and the ability to work hard, that is a powerful triumvirate. And you want that to get to its best and highest use. And what is its best and highest use? It's the, it's the use that can gain the most in an arm's length transaction. And because we basically monetize everything, whatever gets the most money to that person in that particular, with that particular skill set is his highest and best use. Actually, that's the Coase theorem. Look up the Coase theorem. I can't read it to you now. This is going to be a really long show as it is. So that is where you get all the surplus. And the surplus gets into the market. Yes, the person who's going to 
bus balls basically is going to get a lot of surplus and and look forward to an, uh, retiring in luxury because it's worth it. It's worth it to get that person to add so much value that other people can leverage off of. And if you undermine that process, it's really a moral hazard to try to pull people into a role like that, that they couldn't, uh, that they will, could not garner the same recognition or compensation for. They should be somewhere else where they can contribute more or better. And I'm not talking about something less lucrative, just you don't want a bunch of investment bankers who really should be um, English professors, you know, but investment banking pays a lot more. English professor is more rewarding. It's going to be painful to be an investment banker if an English professor is what your true calling is. But if it pays 10 times as much and they tell you, we'll give you a cushy job, you know, to force yourself into this role, it's, it isn't better. It isn't better for society. And that's what I'm saying. Like some people like, Cliff Mass, this teacher, don't agree it's better for society or the individual. And he wants the opportunity to be able to discuss these things. And he's not allowed to. He must conform. That's the idea. But <laughs> the, the vote failed. And I believe it was simply a, a vote of that for promotion or tenure, professors had to issue a statement of diversity. And the vote failed because it didn't reach a supermajority. They did say it got a majority, but it did not get the supermajority. He says, Mass says, the ideology is that the university should be biased in its admissions and resources to ensure equal outcomes for all groups with particular attention to a small number of favored, unrepresented groups. See, this kind of thing may actually be able to, you could get away with it in academia. You know, the, the thing that I say, like academia, media, and politics are the three things where people tell you what to do, but there's no like real rubber hitting the road. They can't really be proven wrong and they can absolutely be uh, promoted for promoting the paradigm rather than being successful in, say, educating people to be um, thinkers, you know, or master philosophy. Like, you don't, if that's not their goal, they can easily not reward people for that. Another place where that could work is a bloated conglomerate monopoly. So they want diversity regulations. They want reporting requirements. They want legal departments. They want environmental departments. They want all this stuff because only a giant bloated conglomerate oligopoly could really afford these giant, these big human resources pools, all of that. And that's their way. They're called regulatory barriers to entry. That's their way to keep competition from cropping up in one area or another. So if you can't have a little startup firm that does something really well because it doesn't have a diversity, equity, and inclusion function, or it doesn't have, you know, a disproportionate representation of extreme minorities in its tiny workforce, then it's never going to be able to compete like it would otherwise. So I can see why it's, this is driven by the really big companies. So I looked into what would a diversity statement be for an academic institution, and the University of Pennsylvania actually describes it as a way for faculty job applica applicants to craft 
requested diversity statements. And I'll just read you a few of the things that they're looking for. They said, in general terms, diversity statements should include past experiences and activities and also future plans to advance diversity, equity, and inclusion. As you are thinking about your statement, keep the following questions in mind as they can help you structure what you're writing about. So here's a sample of those questions. How has your thinking about diversity actively influenced your teaching, research, and or scholarship? So thinking about diversity has to actively, this is not about women's studies. You know, this isn't about um, African-American studies. It's about any academic position. And then it says, in thinking about the roles, the different roles you have played and will play as part of your university service, what role has or will diversity issues play? So what if you don't care about that stuff? I don't, I'm, I'm a math geek. I don't know that stuff. <laughs> I don't even, I'm not even sure what, what, how I would classify myself. Does your engagement with diversity help students prepare for careers in a global society? So maybe that's a little bit of a tell of what we're talking about here. The whole one world, new world order. It says, okay, your experiences working with diverse populations will themselves be diverse. And there's no one type of experience that will be sought by search committees. You may not have substantial past activities. In this case, it would be a good idea to focus on future plans. As, you, as long as you're making an honest attempt to consider your role in meeting each institution's diversity goals, then you're on the right track. Think about your past experiences and future goals as they relate to the following. Community involvement beyond, beyond the university. So you have to spend your free time proving yourself to, as being hook, line, and sinker here. As a true believer, research activities that specifically contribute to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So imagine how much wasted effort there would be in the chemistry department to do that. But I have seen entire sections on these think tank, I don't know if it's the Rockefeller Foundation or what, that's just about, about diversity in, in chemistry, in like, we need more black female chemists. Seriously. Like, what could that possibly have to do with anything? It says future activities you might pursue. Oh, and by the way, they want to talk about, they were soliciting research. They want chemistry academics who are writing about diversity in chemistry. Okay? Like, that's a lot of resources to use for something that isn't really furthering chemistry as a pure science. Future activities you might pursue in context of how they might fit into a research area, department, campus, or national context listing any ongoing campus initiatives of particular relevance you have found from your research into the institution's diversity efforts. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. I can't even. But that's when I got into that. So that that thing about academics, politics, and the media – I always, I noticed that I had an aha moment about how like the people who tell you what to do are the people who actually do not get real feedback from whether they succeed or fail doing that stuff. And when I told that, I think it was the first time I was on Cam's show, he said, did you just reinvent the cathedral? And I was like, I don't know what the cathedral is. And he said, the cathedral is Mencius Molbug or whatever, Curtis Yarvin. I'll tell you about him in a second. His thing about, uh, I don't know, he calls that the cathedral. And so another thing, I think it was Cam or somebody else told me 
Oh, no, I was at Freedom Fest talking to a filmmaker, and he also mentioned... Oh, Cam told me it was Michael Malice who talks about the cathedral, but somebody at Freedom Fest said, yeah, but he just gets it from Curtis Yarvin, and who's also mentioned Smolbug. And another thing that he, he says is that the reason they like diversity and affirmative action and all of that stuff is that if you have people in high positions of power or even high bureaucratic positions who owe their job to you and to that system, and they know that without that system, they would not have that high position, they're going to be loyal to you. They're going to be devoted to the political means. I can tell you what that means in a second, too. Uh, rather than the economic means of of getting wealth, of getting uh, success. And, you know, I had that in the back of my head. And then the the last deep dive I did, the food one, there was a speech or talk that Samantha Power was giving to the CFR. And she said in there, and it was so blatant, she and somebody else there were, were going back and forth about this, and it was so blatant to me, I felt like, I thought I really understood it. She said, we absolutely must, when we think about the future of agriculture and food, put women and girls, and they really, they talk a lot. It it seems to me they're always really addressing the third world. But she said, put women and girls at the center of the food system from access to the food that they're giving out, decision-making about how the food is distributed, because let's face it, if you give it to men, the men will not distribute it to the children, but the women will because their mother, they're nurturing. It's like, could you imagine? Like, men are the ones who bring the antelope home in the first place. <laughs> like, they're bringing it to you. Uh, but, you know, who knows? Maybe not. Uh, and then, although that's kind of a stereotypical generalization to make. And, and then at some point, they, one of them said something like, Half of all the land should be owned by women. Let's just establish that right now. And then I was like, okay. When you think of it that way, I think these guys think women are, and it may be true, it may not be true. I'm not saying, it's, I'm not saying whether it's true or not. I'm just saying, seems to me that they feel confident that women will be easier to control and manipulate. And I think... Yarvin, I think, says that like women getting the vote or other people, who said that? Somebody else said that maybe. Women getting the vote was bad because they tend to like vote socialist or whatever. Although I will defend, <laughs> defend women getting the vote because of the landslides of Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge following <laughs> universal female suffrage in this country, but whatever. So, but I, but it's, that's not to say that you can't appeal to them for exactly this right thing and actually think of them psychologically, sociologically as being more malleable in the exact way that these people are trying to do it. Or they are designing the whole system to exploit this one human weakness, which is malleability of women. Like, I don't know, but it's clear to me, I just had this aha moment that they are all about the women and girls thing because they can't they can't do the minority thing in third world countries that are homogeneous populations of brown people like you're not you're not doing that in Ghana like you're not promoting minorities in Ghana so so women it's kind of like Yoko Ono said I won't repeat her quote exactly but women are the minorities of the world like they are the ones who are always going to be in that role and and that inferiority perceived inferiority is how you can exploit them and and to actually put it in terms of like they should own half the land, that is, 
like an ESG standard. They actually want to measure these things. They want to put measurement metrics on there. And I mean, that's, that in itself, they, they want to say it's an art, but they would like to make it into a science and you'll really have no fighting chance. AI is going to be able to Im- implement that if you really do it that way. So I was trying to make sure I got the Yarvin stuff correct. Exactly right. I've never listened to him. I've never heard him. I just looked up a picture of him. I never saw him. I don't know anything about him. Uh, so I looked it up on Wiki to see if he even had a Wiki page, and he did. And I found something so shocking, so surprising, I should say, that I didn't even catch the fact that his father was in lifelong government service in, like, tech, <laughs> big tech and the foreign service, which to me is absolutely defense, <laughs> absolutely defense. And then uh, I, I stumbled upon an article on Unlimited Hangout about his father and his brother and their Yale connections and their, their DARPA connections. I don't know what. It just went into a lot, a lot of stuff. But even there, there was no mention of the thing that I found to be shocking, And I was very hesitant to call him a limited hangout or anything. I was just like trying to absorb the information about that I, that I discovered, but I guess, um, unlimited hangout was totally fine painting that picture, but never mentioned that Curtis Yarvin was, and and I almost, I only really made the connection or snapped to it because he went to Johns Hopkins, which is as deep state as you can get. Although a lot of people go to Johns Hopkins. You can't say that, but what what you can say is he was in a longitudinal study of mathematically precocious youth. Does that sound familiar? It's under the the Center for Talented Youth. Same guy. I forget the guy's name, but he established it, I think, in the 50s or 60s. Same guy. Stanley, I think his name was. So here is this guy. So now if you go and look at the Center for Talented Youth on Wiki, it has a list somewhere deeply buried of notable alum. And I've read from that list before, but I never realized because of the mentioned small bug thing that Curtis Yarvin was, he was on that list is this guy is one of these people. So on that list, very short list, Lady Gaga, Sergey Brin, Mark Zuckerberg, Ronan Farrow, Andrew Yang. Those were two I hadn't noticed before either. Curtis Yarvin. So I don't want to start a fight. If he, if this is like just, uh, you know, if he broke the, the programming of the, the Johns Hopkins thing or his family thing or whatever, and he wants to talk to me about that Johns Hopkins program, I'd be absolutely fascinated to learn about it. And, the, and it's a longitudinal study, so it goes on and on and on. I would love if Mark Zuckerberg, if any of those people would like to come on my show to talk about this, I would be grateful, truly, unequivocally grateful. I would not be obnoxious at all. So there's an open invitation to anyone who's been engaged in that, that being studied as hyperintelligent, not, not in a, you know, fancy camp for smart kids being studied as one of these hyperintelligent people. So he's a super genius. And also I think a, a Peter Thiel protege or beneficiary from early investments through those people. And that is how they pay guys off these days. It's not just selling books and dumping them into the ocean. They get you on an inside track on something like Facebook or PayPal. And that's a, an easy way to make somebody rich so that they can spend their time working for you as a cultural change agent or whatever, rather than working. <laughs> you know, that's why I think George Soros got the inside scoop on currency moves, movements. So the DEI thing, as I was like reading through it, is it's very, very consistent with the ESG thing. 
in kind of specifics, but also in this idea that it's politics over over objective reality. It's politics over results. It's politics over merit. There's no objective goals, no ability to function outside politicizing everything. And I mean, I remember when my son was in Little League and I mean, tears would come to my eyes on a regular basis there because A, you would see fathers and sons connecting and teaching. You know, the dads would teach and they were in the position of leadership and they were comrades with each other and the kids were too. And man, you didn't catch that ball. You dropped the ball or you did catch the ball and there were consequences to that. That was the defining factor. And and when there were arguments, it was about what was the truth. Was your foot in? Was your foot out? Did he tag you? Did he not tag you? The argument was back getting to the truth. And I love that. My daughter was in Little League. I'm not going to get into the whole story, but maybe I will. Like the the other, she was in the playoffs, even though they weren't a very good team. It just shook out that way. And the other team was just going to crush them. But someone outed them as having taken a player from our district, the pitcher, like the best pitcher in town, onto their great team from our crappy team. So that girl couldn't play. She was no longer able to play for that team. And they were like, that's okay because we still have a great pitcher. But the rule said the pitcher had to have like 24 hours rest or something. So what they did was they didn't show up for our game so that we'd have to postpone it. And if you don't show up like that, it's forfeited. But the coaches or whatever, the manager, the, the little league person said, oh no, we're just going to reschedule it. So I wrote to like the head, head, head person. And she wrote back and she was like, oh my gosh, that's awful. I said, yeah, I'm trying to teach my daughter following rules and everything. That's why we're here. It's not about winning or losing. She walks off crying, saying nothing's fair. This is outrageous, blah, blah, blah. And, and she said, I'm going to, the woman said, I'm going to uh, investigate this totally. And I wrote back to her probably 10 times after that. I never heard back. And, you know, of course the team continued. So it literally was last bastion of objective truth in my experience. And even that, even that, was already gone by the time I was through that system. So I feel like a a central theme here is about subjective, not objective, and about politics over real value added. Um, I think people know pretty much what the environmental, social governance stuff is. It's it's similar. Uh, I'll probably do another show on ESG, probably need to really dig into that. But I just want to say the upshot on the DEI stuff, on the diversity, equity, and inclusion stuff. When when And, and maybe this critical race theory f- folds into this as well. But you really want to, like when you, when you deal with kids, and even when you deal with psychological problems, you... Your best friend is connecting behavior with natural consequences. And when you take merit and reward out of the system, you you really put that power of consequences into the system, into the hands of some elite, into that hierarchy. And it causes a lot of resentment, it causes confusion, and it causes behavior meant to please that person, not behavior meant to add real value. And that, I think, is detrimental to both a human being's individual achievement and their sense of self-worth and their sense of autonomy. And it may even undermine their integrity. If being political like that 
isn't how they were raised, like if they were Christian uh, or Catholic and and uh, many, many other religions, if not all religions, where you're really meant to to be honest, to be fair, to love each other. Then all of a sudden you're stuck in a battle to make some higher person believe that you are the one who's doing what they want you to do, whether what they want you to do is right or wrong, whether it's really adding value. It's just a very um, destructive thing to do to the individual. And it also has a negative impact on society because society is a collection of individuals with a lot of these networks that are meant to help each other and their different abilities work as a unit with those differences intact. So what does our alphabet soup spell? Like to me, it's conformity, compliance, and control. But I asked the tweeps and the tweeps say this. I said, DEI, ESG, CRT, in seven words or less, what does that alphabet soup mean to you? And this is what I got. Grant, lock, load, hold my beer. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, Twitizen, AI that authored government script riffing Orwell. Ed says, I got cathode ray tube, <laughs> CRT. Less archist comes from the same place as CFR. That is true. Justin, fascism with a rainbow sticker on it. Psycho Tropical Thunder, John Rawlings Reese coming in his grave. Steve LaForge, Trudeau speak. English roses and Mexican beer. Lies, brainwashing, propaganda to destroy the next generation. Black Robe Regiment, social welfare bent on oligarchical tyranny. Don says fascism. Rising Star says demons. Lee James says DEI, which of course does mean God. Uh, year Zero, hey, thanks, Tommy, says Antichrist, the fulfillment of globalization. He's showing me a book. Narn Fan, it's communism. It's violating private property for statist object objectives. Sir Tim of the Tunnels, build back better for someone else. That's good. You're building back better, but it's going to be for somebody else's benefit. Don says, love your work. Don Kedick. Nice. Don Kedick says, love your work. Thank you, Don. Uh, Hose v. Mad. The end of all we know. Phase two says, phase two phase podcast says control. What in the Sam Hill podcast says the slippery slope of affirmative action. Death to booty lickers sounds like a bunch of commie gobbledygook. That was my favorite. Sounds like a bunch of commie gobbledygook. Lurker von Creep, avoid like the plague or be doomed. Christ Mystic says, the spirit of the Antichrist. Colin says, it's the new totalitarianism. It controls everything. Ryan says, mechanisms used to compel orthodoxy. It goes on and on. Oh my gosh, how many answers did I get? I got 41 answers. I cannot read them all, but you can go to my Twitter feed, at Monica Perez Show. I'll pin it to the top so you can read the answers and contribute. I'd be so interested if people want to contribute to that conversation. 
So I guess tweeps are completely awake to the dangers here. But in the end, my takeaway is that, that it's all about compassion. This is all about compassion, like not DEI. Like our, just remember that that's what we're here for. I think, I mean, that's, let's just put it this way. That's what redeems us. That's what redeems us. And it's like, I like that expression, how a society treats the weakest member is the measure of that society, which is why like, I, abortion just does not seem like a good <laughs> measure of how you treat the weakest in your society. But my mother probably put it most succinctly when I saw her last. She said, oh, by the way, she's finally feeling 100%. So it seems like COVID is like two weeks of obvious misery and then two weeks of like other stuff feeling bad, but she's a hundred percent. And, uh, she said to me, you know, everyone needs prayers. Even rich people need prayers. Maybe even more than the poor people. Life is hard. And I was like, you know what? She's right. She is right. So that's it. And if you like my show, you like this podcast, I am Monica Perez. You can get all of my material commercial free along with some videos as well as all of Binkley's material and his premium material as well. Lots of videos there at rockvin.com slash propaganda report. I'm Monica Perez. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it on social media or with someone you think would also enjoy it and feel free to tweet at me at Monica Perez Show. 